welcome to Wild Connection, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, but you can just call me Dr. Jen. I'm a scientist and author that studies animal behavior. I'm passionate about animals, and I love helping people reconnect with nature to live better lives. This podcast is about you, other animals, and how we are connected in this crazy, wild thing called life. You can get the show notes and more on my website, jenniferverdelin.com. If you like my show, please subscribe to it so you never have to miss an episode. Hey everybody, welcome back to Wild Connection, the podcast. You know, bees are having a heyday at the moment. I think many of us spend part of our time fascinated by bees and the other part terrified of getting stung. We definitely love the products that bees make for us from honey and propolis to many of the fruits and vegetables you find in the supermarket. But bees are so much more than what they give us. My guest this week is Lars Chitka, a professor in sensory and behavioral ecology at Queen Mary University of London. And he's written a marvelous book, The Mind of a Bee, detailing the complex and intricate inner lives of bees. Before we get to the interview, I wanted to let you know that we have one more episode in this season, and then we're going to take a tiny break. That's because I'm headed to Uganda, where I will be bringing some truly special guests on the pod. It's part of a larger project, but the series is called Voices of Uganda. So stick with me and please support the podcast by giving it a review and sharing it with others. I'll also be writing a blog about my time in Uganda, and you can check that out on my website, jenniferverdelin.com. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at RealDrJen. And of course, follow the pod on Twitter at WildConnectPod. Okay, let's get to it and see what all the buzz is about bees. All right, everybody, I am so excited to welcome Dr. Lars Chitka to the show. Thank you for being here. You're very welcome. I look forward to talking to you. Well, we are here to talk about the mind of a bee. It was such a marvelous journey, and I can't wait to dive in and talk about it. But first, I was wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing with us, you know, how you came to be interested in studying the behavioral and sensory abilities of other species. Um, it depends on how far back you want me to go. So, uh, how far back you want to go? <laughs> I came to bees uh, entirely by accident. I was an undergraduate student at a small town university, Göttingen, in West Germany, um, and quite quickly got bored of the, the town and its limited culture offerings. And um, 
and asked a professor whom I respected at the time um, what he thought of the idea of moving to West Berlin, which at the time was an island in the middle of East Germany. Um, and he sort of, uh, sharp intake of breath, um, explained that this would basically be career suicide and this was a terrible university and all they're interested in is uh, planning revolutions and so on. Then he scratched his head a little bit and said, well, wait, I think there's one good lab and I think they're working on bees, so you might want to check them out. And okay. I said, well, in my youthful optimism, one good lab is enough for me. Um, I'm off to Berlin. Bye-bye. Um, and he was right. Um, it wasn't a great university, I think, at the time. But he was also correct that this lab that studied sensory processes um, and learning behavior in bees was was very good. The, the head was Randolph Menzel, and he was a very inspiring teacher. So that's uh, that's how I got stuck into that subject. And were you always fascinated by animals? Like as a young, young, youngster, did you, uh, you know, did you gravitate towards animals and watching them or was that also an accident? Well, I mean, there's, there's lots of accidents that come together. So I'm a, I'm a village boy. I grew up in a very small village and um, my, my passion amongst animals, behaving animals as a kid was fish. So I always caught all kinds of uh, sticklebacks and other fascinating little fishies in local streams and tried to raise them in an aquarium and so on. We had various encounters with insects. Of course, one, once uh, I found, a, as a perhaps eight-year-old, a, a hornet's nest and used one of my fish nets to fill it entirely with hornets before putting it quickly over my bucket and then uh, went home proudly presenting my uh, parents with a whole bucket full of hornets and they were, <laughs> they were um, very scared. Um, but um, Yeah, I had a similar uh, childhood. I brought home mice and lizards and uh, snakes. It, it was not appreciated so much um, at the time. <laughs> yeah, although I mean, I, at least I have to give my parents credit that they didn't actively um, discourage me from it. I think mostly they they tolerated my, my little zoos. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. And so now you do, have you always studied and, and I could be wrong, but but you study the bumblebee primarily right now. And honeybees. And honeybees. So, so in my um, early career stages, that lab in Berlin was working exclusively on honeybees. Okay. But most of our work here is indeed on bumblebees. That's correct. Okay, great. So, so your new book, like I mentioned, The Mind of a Bee, which everybody needs to get a copy of, was a delight. And one of the things I really appreciated was kind of the heart of the message of the book, which you clearly state in the beginning that each bee has its own mind. And I feel like this is such a valuable perspective because not just for bees, but for bees in particular, because a lot of what we hear about social insects is how there's only the hive or only the ant colony or only the ant uh, or only the wasp's nest and that no individual has their own intentions or their own perspective. Did you always believe that each bee has its own mind or is that something you came to understand? That's a very good question. I, I think in this case, I can pretty confidently state that that was apparent to me right away. 
Um, so in the first summer when I worked with bees, and that was 1987, and we trained bees with to, to recognize certain colored patterns and then tested their performance in discriminating the learned pattern, the one that was previously associated with rewards, from some other patterns. And it was absolutely clear for me that different individuals were differently good at this task. They learned it with different precision and speed. And um, my supervisor um, was convinced that this was all noise and asked me to just disregard this variation in behavior and, and said that the, the proper way of dealing with this noise, as he called it, was just to average all the data and then get, get one neat curve. And um, I disagreed with that. And we had a, a bit of a discussion until he sort of banged his fist on the table and declared, this is how it's done. We've done it like this for 30 years. And just believe me that this is the proper way of dealing with noisy data. Um, but so, of course, the... The interesting thing is that sometimes if you have a sort of fledgling idea in your mind and then meets, meets strong resistance, then that idea grows even further. And then you, you, um, that puts you on the spot to think about how you could quantify it and back it up with more hard evidence. So I think that, was, that discussion was a, was a useful one to have, even though we disagreed. But it put me off on a trajectory that I think was, was useful. Right. So, so it's interesting because I think that his, that his perspective mirrored what has been kind of the dominant perspective, not forever, because I mean, even Darwin talked about different personalities and emotions and the mind of other, other animals. And then we seem to kind of get into this box of, that's just noise. And so I can see how, you know, based on your observations that provided sort of a, a compelling motivation to, um, to document it. And you did. And, and I want to talk about work on uh, your work on personalities and differences in, um, in, in bees. I've done some work on personalities and lemurs and, and prairie dogs, and it surprises me how, the general public sort of readily accepts that other animals have personalities, but the topic has been more controversial among scientists. Why do you think that that is? Why do you think there was such resistance to the idea that individual differences were meaningful and not just noise? That's a curious question because as you say, I think most pet owners have a sense of, um, one dog being different to another dog in very obvious traits and the ways in which they're aggressive or affectionate, um, in which they are skilled at manipulating their owners to get a bit of extra attention and so on. So it's a fairly obvious phenomenon, I think, for people who regularly deal with animals, whereas in scientists, this idea took a while to, to germinate. And it's, this is especially peculiar because, as you say, very prominent scientists have, have made such observations and written about them. 
um, and they're not necessarily marginal figures such as Darwin, as you say. Uh, Thorndike, one of the early learn pioneers of learning science, established individual learning curves for the various animals that he worked with. And another important figure that I'd like to mention is Charles Turner, who is an, was an African-American scientist who um, worked in the late 19th, early, early 20th century, and who was a remarkable scientist because he had very visionary ideas, amongst other things, about animal personality and their intelligence. But he did much of his work against a backdrop of extremely difficult circumstances. That is, he, he was not able to find work at a major research university because of his ethnicity, and thus did much of his work while at the same time being a high school teacher at a school for, for black children. And um, we can only imagine how difficult that must have been. He would have been powerfully under-resourced and so on. But he wrote extensively and from his earliest papers from the age of 25 about individual differences in spiders and insects and other animals in relation to their learning ability. And often in prominent publication outlets such as the journal Science, which is very prestigious. But largely this work has been forgotten. And so people found themselves starting all over, it seems, in, in the science world from about the 1980s saying, hey, there was a useful idea after all, and then uh, often reinventing the wheel, I think. Um, so I don't know why that is. I mean, it is, of course, true that, that in any behavioral experiment, when you quantify behavior, there is variability, and sometimes animals do downright erratic things that, um, that generate perhaps seemingly messy data, and that 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 means there is some value sometimes to to do some averaging to eliminate sort of um, outliers and so on. But in the exploration of genuine individual differences between animals' psychology, this approach has been powerfully counterproductive. And you know, I've noticed that in you know at least the last decade or two, there's been some scientists that call it behavioral syndromes and not personalities where where it almost sounds like it's a condition that <laughs> other animals have so i love how you talk about personality and and call it what it is personality and and i'm curious how much you know because bees uh and i don't know all my genetics of all you know insects but so at least among honeybees, there's a lot of genetic similarity among individuals, especially the worker bees. And, and so how much does life experience and learning play a role in these differences that you've seen among individuals? Yeah, so as in us, of course, there are various ways that contribute to various factors that contribute to who you are and there is a genetic component there's no question about it and there is also a component of experience and 
There are genetic differences in learning ability, for example, in honeybees and other bees as well. And so that means that with some probability, these predispositions determine how rapidly you can learn, what you can learn, and so on. But you can still learn and, and acquire experiences that also then subsequently shape your personality. So it's a bit of both of these. And there are many things that, that bees have to learn on a, on a daily basis. And we've long known that they need to learn both the location of their hive as well as the locations of flowers. They need to learn about um, how to manipulate flowers and to gain access to the rewards that are contained in them. They need to remember the appearance of flowers and so on. Now, this is not what we would call um, a personality to just have stored certain bits of information, but there are other factors. So for example, bees that have been exposed to simulated predation um, attacks. So for among the many things that hunt bees, despite them having stingers are crab spiders that lurk on flowers that chameleon style can adopt the color of flowers, so they're hard to see often. They will try to capture bees as well as other pollinators, but they often fail. So there's an opportunity for bees to get away and learn from the experience. And it turns out that they don't only then learn to avoid flowers with um, spiders on them, but their whole demeanor in examining flowers changes. So they, they for days after such experiences, possibly their lifetime, they um, scan the flowers for extended durations before landing on them. And they also sometimes behave as if they're seeing ghosts. So they're basically rejecting flowers that are after scanning them that actually are perfectly safe. So they behave as if they, they, they inspect the flowers and go, ah, oh, something doesn't look quite right. Um, and then escape to to a nearby flower. So they they're, um, they behave as if they're uh, like someone with PTSD. That is, they're running away from the threat in this case that actually doesn't exist. Yeah, I can relate to that. <laughs> um, and in fact, we're seeing that in many species now when they've been exposed to, you know, sort of a. a a predator event. And do you notice differences? Are some bees more reluctant after or more likely to, as you, as you sort of say, see a ghost that isn't there than other bees? Do some bees recover faster from that kind of event and are better at discerning when there's a real threat present later versus, I don't know, I feel pretty anxious about this flower. I'm going to, I'm going to just go. Mm -hmm. So in this particular study, we didn't examine such differences, but for pretty much every psychological trait, or including learning ability, where we have good sample sizes of multiple individuals and test them multiple times in over their lives, there are such consistent inter-individual inter differences. So I'd be surprised if you wouldn't also find them in the case of recovery from scary experiences.
Yeah. Well, and you know, I love how you describe differences um, among bees. You said uh, some bees are more aggressive than others. Some are more hardworking, some more intelligent. Some make fast and sloppy decisions while others are more careful. What amazed you the most about the differences? Was there any particular trait that that surprised you, even though you'd seen these individual differences um, either among the bumblebees or or the honeybees? Yeah, I mean, so beyond these traits that we quantified in multiple individuals, there are often one or two genius bees that do things very differently from all other bees. And the, these, are, these are truly surprising. So for example, once we did an experiment where, which required us to catch the bees upon departure from their hive, weigh them, release them, and then capture them again when they returned from a foraging bout, because we wanted to know how much nectar they collect per unit time. So we needed to weigh them both at the start and the end of their trip. And this, at the time, required us to capture the bees briefly in a dark container and, and then weigh them, release them. So just this procedure just took a few seconds. And most bees were initially, of course, a bit reluctant to be caught. But after a few experiences, they mostly realized that nothing adverse would happen to them. So they didn't resist all that much. But there was a single individual that came to learn to fly directly into the container before we then put it into the nest box. And that this, so this bee basically used the black container as a kind of public transport, even when we walked several meters away from the native nest and just held the black container into the air, that bee would zoom straight into that black, black thing and be transported back with their detour via the scales where, where we weighed them. Yeah, I read that and I thought, oh, that's remarkable. You know, like why spend the energy to fly when I can get a free ride? Mm -hmm. Seems seems quite, yeah. quite brilliant. And and so did you. So, so you know, you notice that there's these one or two, sometimes these one or two really innovative individuals that that solve a problem. Do they so do they ever become like leader bees? I mean, are there leader bees and follower bees where other bees learn from these innovative individuals? So in this particular context of bumblebees learning, for example, unusual um, techniques, there, there is evidence that these techniques can be passed on to other individuals. So one of our many experiments for foraging techniques was a, a string pulling puzzle. And that's a task that's previously been used in primates and clever corvid birds and so on. And um, I had a discussion a long time ago with with colleagues who work on such uh, glamorous, intelligent animals, and um, they um, were a bit dismissive about our bees' learning abilities. And so I just sort of just flippantly commented, well, I bet our, our bees can learn a string pulling task. And so we, we did manage to train some bees in such a task and then asked what would happen if we 
seeded, so to speak, a colony of bees with a single trained individual and then looked how the technique might spread from that individual to others in the colony when they had uh, exposure to each other. And so we paired this trained demonstrator, as we called that bee, um, to um, show how it's done to other bees. And indeed, after a few such interactions, pretty much every other forager bee in that colony will learn the technique as well. So you can then see how it spreads pretty much like a meme in a human social network through all the individuals of the colony. And indeed it persists. These are short lived, of course, they just live a few weeks. The phenomenon, the, the skill persists even after the original skilled individual passed away. That is, so that's really fascinating. And I, you know, for all those uh, scientists studying those fancy, um, seemingly intelligent, other intelligent animals, you know, capuchin monkeys, they, they can transfer, you know, uh, sort of behaviors across, you know, um, individuals in their community, but some of them don't seem to make a lot of sense, like poking each other in the eye, um, for example, spread rapidly <laughs> in one group of capuchins. Uh -huh. And I don't know, I feel like maybe bumblebees would be a bit more discerning about what they would pass on <laughs> or be willing to learn, hopefully something useful. I'm sure first, the capuchins, maybe they think it's useful to poke each other in the eye. I'm not, I'm not sure, but yes. you know, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, it's interesting because you spend a good chunk of the, the book talking about the sensory capabilities of the bees, sort of setting up, setting us up for, for bringing it all together, you know, when we're thinking about what's going on in the mind of a bee and, and, you focus, um, one of the, the, you know, things that you focused on is, is color vision. And, and this is, I think very interesting. There's so many interesting, um, sensory capabilities, but what's the biggest difference between the way that bees see color and how we see color? The biggest difference, I think, is in the parts of the spectrum that we versus bees can see. So we can see colors in the range from violet to red. And to both sides of the spectrum at the short wavelength end, ultraviolet and the long wavelength and infrared, we are blind to such wavelengths. Um, outside that, that range from violet to red. Now, bees, conversely, can see the ultraviolet to quite a bit further, shorter wavelengths than we can, but they're not as good as, as, as we are at seeing red colors. So their entire visual spectrum is shifted to shorter wavelengths. And that means that they can see colors in a dimension that's wholly inaccessible to us. And it turns out that in that ultraviolet range, there is a lot going on in nature around us to which we are entirely blind. And that's because we're actually the exception in the animal kingdom in a sense that the vast majority of animals can see the ultraviolet. That includes not just all insects that we've so far tested, but also many birds and reptiles and fish that can see ultraviolet. 
that also means that there is a lot of signaling going on in the ultraviolet, and that includes birds' feathers and also, of course, many flowers that specifically cater to this sensory ability. So many flowers that seem to us as uniformly yellow or red or blue for that matter, are also in certain parts of the flower reflecting in the ultraviolet. So there are patterns that bees can see and other animals can see as well that are, are wholly invisible to us. Right, So that's yeah. a major, major difference that I think is, illustrates the fact that the, the world we see and perceive is, is not an objective representation of the world that's out there, but each animal has evolved to perceive only certain parts of our environment and to disregard others that might not be necessarily relevant to us or other animals. Yeah. I, well, and, you know, the more I read and, and, and you know, I had early on um, at the beginning of the when I started the podcast, I had um, I forget what his name was, but he studied a lot of the um, glow in the dark <laughs> Australian animals that nobody realized actually, you know, were emitting pink and blue. And it was just like a rave party out there um, in, the, uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. in the Australian bush. But the more I read about all of the abilities that that bees have, I really feel like as humans are getting gypped here on the superpower spectrum um, and, and not just on vision. I mean, you talk about the difference. So, so bees can also use a magnetic compass. So the earth's magnetic field and a sun, sun compass. And um, I recently had Andreas Vidal Gadea on to, who talked about how other animals use the earth's magnetic field to find their way and and how we all have a little bit of iron in us um but we we can't seem to do it so so how do honeybees do that and then i'll follow up with the sun compass because that's fascinating but so how do honeybees use the earth's magnetic field are they do they have little chunks of iron in them possibly so the, the truth is that this has not been um, unequivocally um, shown what the actual mechanism, the neural sensory mechanism is that that mediates compossibility in bees or most other animals. It's a fairly mysterious ability and with various possible explanations throughout the animal kingdom. So we don't know yet how bees do it, but you know that they can do it. Exactly. Yeah. So there is evidence both from data inside uh, the hive where their their honeybees for example align their dances not just outside the hive with the 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 sun compass and inside the hive to the direction of gravity but there is also an influence of the earth's magnetic field on the precision of the dances and outside the hive there seems to be um, evidence that they're also using the earth's magnetic field it's fascinating. So, okay. So what is a sun compass and what's special about being able to use it for, for bees or anything else? I don't know if other animals use sun compasses too, but I don't, other what animals is it? Do too. Yeah. So as opposed to a magnetic compass where, where the convenience is that the needle always points North Using something like the sun as a compass is, of course, more difficult because 
the sun is always in a different direction depending on what time of day it is and also for migrating animals depending on where they are on the planet but let's keep the simple scenario where you spend your life in one location um, of course the the sun is on the northern hemisphere in the uh, east in the morning and then the south in the middle of the day and in the west in the evening so if you want to remember the path from a home base your hive if you're a bee or your nest to a certain flower relative to the sun then without further information about what time of day it is it's going to be useless because let's say you're your um, destination, your target is due east of the hive. Then in the morning, yes, you can fly in the direction of the sun. But if you continue flying in the direction of the sun, then you'll fly due south in the middle of the day and your food is going to be 90 degrees off where you actually want to go. So the special thing about using the sun as a compass cue is that you need to not just pay attention to where the sun is, but you also need to know what time of day it is so that you know if your food is in the east from your home base that you have to fly in the direction of the sun in the morning, opposite the sun in the evening, and 90 degrees to the sun in the middle of the day. And any other time in between, you need to similarly know what time of day it is to know to make meaningful sense of the position of the sun. Yeah. So I would already be lost, you know, like just <laughs> both. I, I'm not good with any kind of direction and clearly I would fail. I would be one of those, you know, less than stellar bees at this task and may not ever return home. Um, how do bees figure all this out? So they, they need to learn the course of the sun. It's not um, necessarily innate, so um, they need to be exposed to where the sun is during um, their early careers as foragers and then can extrapolate, even from just foraging a few hours of the day, the, the rest of the course of the sun at the, in their um, local residence. And it's quite spectacular, actually, that they can even, once they've figured out the position of the sun, the angle relative to the time of day, they can even extrapolate to where the sun is behind the horizon during the night. So Martin Lindauer, um, many decades ago, um, looked into the hive at night and found that some bees will communicate the location about um, the, the location of food places that they had visited in the the day before. That's a communication system that we haven't actually explained yet. So I, I should um, just briefly point out that honeybees have a symbolic communication system by which they can talk to other individuals inside the hive about the location of a food source. And this makes reference to where the sun is. So they can tell other bees fly 40 degrees to the right of the sun, for example. So the sun compass is also used in this language. And um, some bees will spontaneously indicate familiar locations in the middle of the night. And then during that, they make correct reference to where the sun is basically behind the horizon, not visible, extrapolating from the course of the sun during the day. So roughly the sun moves 15 degrees per hour 
to make its 360 during, throughout the day. And from just partial information during part of the day, they can extrapolate the entire course of the sun it's over the 24-hour period. Yeah, it's remarkable. Can, can humans do this? Um, not to my knowledge. I mean, humans can certainly use a, a sun compass and, and presumably with uh, the, the right kind of instruction, yes, they can do this. I don't know if it's, um, it's been explored whether any sort of um, indigenous peoples make that sort of use of the sun. I'm not sure because it might not be useful for human orientation. There are spectacular examples, of course, of people using the stars for navigation in um, Southeast Asian cultures. This was how they navigated from distant, between distant islands for thousands of miles over the open sea for millennia. This is how they got as far as um, South America from Asia and back. And so humans are, of course, remarkably clever also at using various uh, entities in the sky for navigational purposes. I'm not sure if there's evidence that they're, um, well, unless in modern times extrapolated the course of the sun during the nighttime hours. Yeah, that's spectacular. So you 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 kind of introduced this uh, method of communication in the hive, and you know a lot of people may have heard about the the waggle dance of honeybees, which is sort of the w physical way that they're communicating this information. And and I remember in the book you said that you know it's dark in the hive, and so. So other bees aren't necessarily watching. They can't necessarily see what the bee is doing, but they they touch the bee while it's doing its dance um, to get that information. And is it always about communicating, you know, the sun, where the food is? Is that basically the primary function of this, this waggle dance? There are two main functions. One is to communicate the location of food, and the other is to indicate uh, possibly suitable nesting sites. And that's a, a really fascinating problem because it requires the it requires a large number of individuals in a swarm, perhaps 30, 40,000 individuals to agree on one common destination. Um, because individual bees can't live on their own and they, they need to be uh, together with their sisters and their queen to be a functional unit. So there's, there's no room there for, for disagreement. And so it is quite a um, remarkable phenomenon where over time a consensus needs to be built with lots of initially disagreeing individuals. And so what, what happens there is, so unlike many other animals where the young, once they're mature enough, leave the native nest and move somewhere else, in honeybees, it's the old queen with perhaps several 10,000 seasoned forages that leaves the native nest in search for a new location. And they seed the the um, home colony to a new queen. And so at first they leave the, the hive and cluster on a nearby tree branch, for example, and then this decision-making uh, process kicks off. 
many hundred scouts might swarm over, might fly out over, over territory of many square miles to explore for suitable cavities. So originally, wild honeybees typically nest in hollow trees, but they'll also take a chimney or a garden shed or anything like that. And so these scouts explore lots of different locations and then return to the swarm advertising the location of the destinations that they have discovered. And so the, the, the dance language is basically a repeated motor display that looks a little bit like a dance because of its repetitiveness. So the bee runs around in a roughly bigger eight-shaped um, run, and other bees can pick up the, the information content of these dances by basically putting their antenna on the, the abdomen of the dancing bee and following its pattern around. And the more dance circuits per unit time the dancing bee goes through, the closer is the destination advertised. And so that's the, the, um, the, how they um, um, code for distance. I'm skipping over a few of the, the finer detail, but um, basically sure. this is the distance code. And the direction code is where um, there is at the center of this figure eight, um, a brief period when the bee walks in a straight line. And this straight line on the swarm or the honeycomb, depending on where the dance takes place, um, is measured relative to the direction of gravity. Where, where walking up in a straight line tells other bees fly in the direction of the sun. Walking straight down means fly opposite the sun. And walking 90 degrees to the right of the direction of gravity tells other bees fly 90 degrees to the right of the sun. So on the swarm cluster, different bees have different opinions, of course, because they've found different locations. Some have found really good locations, others have found so-so locations. But initially, of course, you don't know how good the ultimate op opportunities will be. So every location that's at all acceptable will, will be advertised. And over a course of a few days, eventually a complete consensus builds until all bees just indicate one location and then the entire swarm lifts off and flies to, to the target destination. Wow. So how is this consensus achieved? Yes. It turns out that there's no counting of votes. There's no wise leader. There's not the queen that walks around and takes all the votes and says, right, now I've heard all of you, we're going to fly south. <laughs> um, the queen actually turns out is not involved at all in this decision making. Um, it's, a, it's a remarkably decentralized process by which there's no, no, um, no adding up of the different opinions. But what happens instead is that individuals that have found better information will advertise it for a longer duration. So a bee that has found a, a really good location in, let's say, the north will run around on the swarm cluster for several minutes going north, 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 north. And another bee that's found a so-so location in the southeast will also advertise it because, of course, that bee doesn't know yet 
whether there'll ever be a better source. So she'll go southeast, 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 and then stop. And so by simple stochastic processes, this means that any random bee that just walks around on the swarm looking for information has a higher chance of bumping into a dancing bee that, not, that has good and high quality information because that bee will advertise that location for a longer period, right? right? Yeah. And so then because let's say there's a bee that has really good information and advertises it for just a random number, 10 minutes, lots of other bees will also come into contact with that bee, will subsequently explore the target destination, come back to the swarm and also advertise it again for a long duration because it's a better site. And so the entire process snowballs until basically a, a majority of bees has found that destination. They advertise it. And then if they also find that there's a good number already inspecting that destination, that's when the decision is made and the entire swarm lifts off. So, well, and it's so remarkable in my view because it's a, it's such an alien communication system which uses body movements to pass on information by the by means of symbols there's no as in other animals you might see them directly lead other individuals of a group or or carry them there and so on but there's really a symbolic code that's so different from how we understand communication now what's this film um Arrival a few years ago. I don't know if you've seen it. It's a kind of science fiction film where alien oh, yes. cephalopods basically have an, um, a, a sort of um, communication system that humans then try to decipher. Yes. And remarkably, that supposedly alien system is a whole lot less strange than some of the communication systems we find here on Earth, right. including in this case in, in honeybees. And so there's, there's such a wonderfully alien life to be found right around us. Oh, I, I completely agree. And, you know, the thing that struck me as listening to you talk about how this decision is made is one, you know, OK, the bee that talks the most, you know, is pretty confident in their assessment of this site. But other bees still fact check. <laughs> the location yeah. right it's yes. not just oh oh he must be right or she sorry she must be right um because you know she keeps going on and on and on about this fabulous place up in the north you know they they go and and see for themselves and i assume i could be wrong but i assume that they compare it relative to what they found themselves or other sites they might have already, if they had bumped into a, a different bee that had seemingly better quality site than they had found, they might have already investigated a previous site. Do we have any sense of how many sites are investigated or fact-checked before they say, well, yeah, you know, North is really the best one? Mm -hmm. So this work by um, Tom Seeley and earlier Martin Lindauer, whom I mentioned earlier in the context of the night dances, have typically found that there is at least a dozen, possibly two dozen different sites that are investigated over the course of the 
decision-making process. And so in a sense, the swarm as a whole, as a, as a, as a sort of entity of many individuals, um, makes a lot of comparisons there. Um, what these scholars are saying is, however, not that it's individuals actually making these comparisons, only the swarm as a whole, if you wish, and that each individual will indicate the, the um, quality of a site only according to the assessment of that site, not relative to how they have assessed as individuals other such sites. Okay. So um, I think, um, and I think from memory, this is backed up with, with good data. So it's um, the individuals may evaluate each location individually and don't, for example, advertise something more enthusiastically if it contrasts strongly with a rubbish location that they've inspected in the past. Right. But they might have dis discovered a site that they think is okay. Yeah. Go Southeast. And then if they've bumped up to some other B that says North, 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 and they go and investigate North, they might come back then and advertise North as well. That's what you were saying, right? That's correct. So it, right. the whole process uh, rests on, on flexibility of the bees and, and their, the, the fact that they can adjust their views based on, on hard evidence. Mm -hmm. Right. Excellent. I love bees. Okay. I want to talk. Yeah. I just kind of, this is sort of something, you know, related to the waggle dance, but it, it's, I think it, you know, I'm hoping you might have some insight here. I remember reading a study looking at how preventing bees from sleeping uh -huh. messed up their communication system. And I always think about this, you know, it, 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 from also a human perspective, you know, sleepy people are poor communicators, um, you know, people who are not well rested, let's put it that way, you know. And so basically they, they kept them up all night and, and sleepy bees gave poor directions. They, they, they were off in, I, I don't know if it was distance or, or, direction um but is there is there anything else that leads to mistakes or is it just being sleepy um i mean being sleepy yes is one of the the many things and of course um we still don't even in humans fully understand the function of sleep it's a very very mysterious chunk of our our 24-hour day that I mean, if you think about it, if you or other animals could use this time to boost their fitness, either by increasing their forage intake or predator intake, um, by um, their, their safety, by being vigilant, you're, of course, especially vulnerable to parasites and, um, and uh, predators during the day and diseases. So you might more easily be stung by a malaria carrying mosquito during the night when you're sleeping. So from every perspective that you could think of, skipping sleep would be, would be beneficial, yet all animals need it. And it turns out so do bees. Um, and so yes, Barrett Klein and, um, and Tom Seeley, I think did this study where they put little, um, little metal chips on the bees' backs and then you, by moving magnets over the the comb several times a night they um they disrupted the poor bees sleep i know i felt so bad for those bees <laughs> mm -hmm. 
And and it turned out that not only is in this case their communication disrupted, but Randolph Menzel has also found that their memories are less consolidated if bees are disturbed during sleep. So it seems that sleep is important as for bees as for many other animals, but we still don't fully understand why that is and why why right. we or other bee other animals, including bees, can't do without it. Right. There are other factors that disrupt the precision in bees' dances, for example, exposure to, to pesticides. You might have heard that one of the many reasons why bees are in trouble is because of our industrialized agriculture that delivers all kinds of uh, fruit and vegetables year-round to everyone of course, is is highly dependent on minimizing any damage by herbivores. And so most um, plants are thickly covered in various toxic substances or contain them in their seeds and leaves and so on to deter caterpillars and so on. But this, these substances also leak into the nectar of flowers and are therefore brought home by bees. And and unsurprisingly, these substances, which are designed to kill insects, even at low dosages, when they don't kill, are still harmful. They're neurotoxins. They're substances designed to mess with the nervous system. And so they affect both bees' communication as well as their memory and their overall health and right. resilience to other pathogens, of course, and so on. Yeah. And the irony, right, is that we rely so heavily on honeybees to get all of those fruits and vegetables um, as pollinators into the supermarkets. So um, we're sort of, you know, what is that saying when you bite your nose off to spite your face? Something like that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so clearly <laughs> we're shooting ourselves in the foot. Um, yeah. And it's not just honeybees. Honeybees, of course, the, the, the damage is most visible because they are a domesticated animal, basically. They're kept by beekeepers. And beekeepers will, will notice right away the, the impact that such um, pesticides can have. But honeybees are also the best protected in a sense that they are looked after by, um, by, by people where, um, and, and are helped through the winter, for example, when uh, when the colonies are in poor condition and so on. But there are, of course, many thousand species of wild bees that don't um, either have a lobby or people to look after them because they um, they do their pollination services in the wild and also they have to the, maintain their colonies or their little um, single bee nests by themselves. And it's much easier to spot the damage there. And there's also very little that humans can do about the damage other than than um than uh, campaigning for the, the abandoning these the, the heavy use of pesticides and perhaps planting suitable wildflowers and provide nesting opportunities as well yes there's a bee hotels and you know um that that some people have put up in their yards that provide little nesting areas for um, native bees. I know you're busy and you've got lots of exciting work to do. So I just, I just wanted to say, you know, uh, have a few closing questions. You know, I, I would say anybody who reads The Mind of a Bee will leave that book not only having greater respect for bees, 
Um, but also, you know, your, uh, passion for bees comes through loud and clear. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, how your work on bees has changed your perspective about the minds of other species in general. That's an interesting question. I mean, my work on bees, first of all, has changed my perspective on bees. Um, um, so I think when I first did my master's and PhD, for example, the, the question of insects potentially being sentient was was regarded as ludicrous um and and that includes me i have to admit um that we we just um had very little concern for um the research methods that were often used right around me not by me but by others um using invasive electrophysiological experiments without any kind of anesthesia or analgesics on tethered bees and so on. Um, and it was just, uh, I think everyone at the time thought that there was nothing to worry about. And it's been only through the intense study of their behavior and psychology over the de decades that I now increasingly think that, that there is reason for real concern. Um, and and um, so I think this this perspective that that um, there are these creatures out there that can learn and um, and um, remember all kinds of things about their environment, but not suffer. That perspective needs reevaluation, and and that applies not just to bees, but of course to other insects as well. Um, there is a um, campaign at the moment, and the United Nations endorsed this, for example, to increase the use of insects for human food. And there are good justifications for thinking about that. We, after all, have to feed a, a growing human population of that is going to be 10 billion in just a few decades. And, um, and so long as they don't all turn to my lifestyle as a vegetarian, they will consume meat and 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 the more people there are, the more meat they'll they'll need. Now, the advantage of using insects as opposed to conventional livestock would be that you have much less greenhouse gas emission per kilogram meat. You have shorter times to raise the individuals. Uh, you can raise lots of them in a in a very tiny space. Um, and so, yeah, there's less of an adverse footprint of this kind of growing of meat than there is with with uh, cattle and 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 sheep and, and and so on. But the other angle why this um, um, uh, of this growing popularity of insect food is that people still sort of inherent well have an there's an implicit assumption. Well, the other advantage is we don't have to do cruel things to critters that suffer from it because yes, we know that cows can suffer and that it's not nice to put them all into a tightly confined space, but with insects, there's nothing to worry about. Right. And I think there might be, at least now is the time when we need that information before this, um, this uh, use of insects for food is reaches industrial scales 
that um, are comparable to conventional livestock, but potentially making the same kinds of mistakes. So right. we need that research now to make sure that whatever is done with insect farming is, is ethically defensible and well-grounded in science. I, I appreciate you talking about that. And I think that it's, um, you know, raising the awareness of the awareness and um, inner lives of other animals um, is, is taking us a long way to hopefully getting people thinking about that. Um, and just one final question, what is next for you? Um, and what are some of the things you're working on now? Some of the questions that you are, are tackling um, about the bees and their minds and their lives? Well, we, we continue to be very interested in the question of consciousness in bees. And, and the, the, that is historically, of course, a very difficult question to answer in any animal that can't communicate with language. So we have, I think, now sufficient evidence that there is some, however simple form of consciousness in the bees, but we'd like to find out more what's actually going on inside a bee's mind. How is their consciousness different from ours or from that of, of other animals? And that requires some, um, some innovativeness with protocols that, um, that um, um, well, as in other animals, this is a very difficult question to explore. We would also, course like to understand in this case with modeling given what we now know about the brains of bees can we somehow replicate a mind of a bee with a model a kind of um, in silico mimic of of a bee's brain for example and one of the applied uh, directions that emerged from our work of bees is yes to explore the, the kinds of insects that are currently being touted as being useful for grand scale farming, like black soldier flies and crickets, mealworms and so on, whether there's reason for, for concern, um, depending on how they're kept and slaughtered, and um, if there are ways to make the treatments more ethically defensible if, um, if that um, proves necessary. Wonderful. I, you know, um, all of your work is so impressive and I encourage everyone to go and get this wonderful book, The Mind of a Bee. Thank you so much, Lars, for, for talking with me. Thank you so much for your interest. I wanted to follow up on the end of this interview because Lars and some of his colleagues have recently published work concluding that insects most likely do feel pain. When we think of bees and other insects, we don't tend to think of them as having sentience, consciousness, or awareness, or self-purpose, or pain. And that needs to change. And Lars's book, The Mind of a Bee, gets us on the road to thinking differently. And his research is showing that insects register physical trauma in very much the same way that we do. The very same molecules and chemicals that our bodies release during a traumatic event are released by other species, including insects, in response to what would be considered 
physically painful events. Not only does this matter for how we think about insects, but also how we treat them. Many kids might rip the leg off of an insect for fun, but this is almost certainly causing enormous suffering. And as Lars pointed out, in our quest and thirst for food, we may be on the verge of perpetrating the same misery on insects that we currently inflict on millions of other animals every single day. There's a saying that when you know better, you do better. Other species are waiting for us to do better. Start doing better. All right, that's all for this week. Don't forget, you can check out the show notes for links to get your copy of The Mind of a Bee. I highly recommend it. Links to news articles talking about Lars's latest research. And of course, links to follow and keep up with him, as well as keeping up with the pot. Thanks for listening.